So uh, Hugo Sakamoto is a young Asian student who uh, studied abroad during his teenage years uh, and found himself, as a lot of uh, Asian students uh, do when they're in America, uh, and that is depressed. Apparently, the uh, language barrier is, is just sometimes too much for some of these students. And surprise, Americans aren't always that helpful at helping them out. But Hugo found some hope uh, when he joined the school choir. As it turns out, it is three times easier to learn the vocabulary of a language when you sing it rather than when you speak it. The, the melody and the words, when they get combined, they find themselves sort of lighting up places in your cerebellum that's, an act, that's activated whenever you start to sing. In other words, songs really do get stuck in your head. And, and the funny thing is, is that as I started to research this, there's also all these crazy health benefits that are being discovered uh, from our singing. Apparently, it can boost your immune system. Uh, it can help you sleep better, something I think our children have known for quite some time. Uh, you know, the great sage Stevie Wonder quoted in Sir Duke, music is a world within itself with a language we all understand, right? And yes, you're welcome for having that song stuck in your head for the rest of the morning. The point is, our singing is powerful, when we sing, we're sending something out into the world that has power over us to mold and to shape not only those people who listen, but ourselves as well. And my point this morning is, is that the power of singing isn't just effective as it's being sent out from us. Because when certain events come home to us, it seems often the most powerful emotions that we experience can only be expressed in our singing. In other words, sometimes all you can do is to sing when certain news arrives. Well, look, if you're just joining us, we've been, uh, since the month of August at Christ Prez, we've been doing this deep dive into what it means to be the people of God. And we just wrapped up an exposition of the book of Exodus last week to see the origins of how God sort of brings his people about. And next semester, we're going to be starting in February, uh, a look through the New Testament book of Ephesians sort of seeing how God sort of uh, culminates his people of God in this organization slash organism called uh, the church. But we've come to the Christmas season and the life of our church, and so I thought I'd spend some time uh, speaking about an often overlooked feature of how it is that the people of God solidify, or we might say how they congeal into becoming the, a group of believing people. In other words, how is it that a group of isolated individuals <clears throat> become associated with one another, uh, that they grow in affection towards one another, that they uh, become something more than just the sum of its parts? Well, my guess is it'll surprise you to find out how much singing plays a role in that very activity, at least in the Bible's calculus. <clears throat> so here at Christmas time, I want to do a four-week series uh, that I've entitled, How Can I Keep From Singing? from that famous uh, hymn. Because here's the truth. Whenever the news of Jesus' advent reached the first uh, people that it was told about, the entire world, whether it was the, the seen world or the unseen world, the primary result that happened in them when they heard it was to burst into song. I mean, think of standing around the baseball field for the 4th of July uh, celebrations here in Oxford. You, know, you also hear this loud boom coming from that back parking lot, right? And this streak of white light goes up into the sky, and all of a sudden, it explodes into this symphony of color and light. Well, that's what the announcement of Christmas was like 
for these first hearers. It was like an explosion, but an explosion into song. And so we have recorded in the first couple chapters of Luke all of these songs that the original singers, or original listeners sang as they did. And so we're going to look at three of those beginning next week. But this morning, I want to focus and draw your attention to what really is a remarkable passage from the book of Revelation, chapter 14, that we just got read. Because here we find that singing is actually one of the primary ways in which God is going to advance his purposes throughout the world. So I want to look at under three headings this morning, the context of our singing, the content of our singing, and then finally the capability of our singing, what it can accomplish. So first of all, the context. Look, I've dropped us into this uh, middle of Revelation that's describing a group of people that are powerfully discouraged by the world around them. Uh, The last two chapters prior to our passage have pictured uh, the devil uh, as a great, terrible dragon. Uh, who actually has at his disposal two fearsome beasts, one from the land and one from the sea. And if you'll go back and read that this afternoon, you'll find that these beasts are, are powerful, uh, they're blasphemous and cocky, uh, violence seems to follow them all around, uh, people are getting hurt and deceived by their witness, uh, they also are in control of the economy in ways to create inequality and injustice and suffering among people. In other words, the book of Revelation is written to a profoundly discouraged and suffering people who are having their suffering imagined through these very fantastic images that the Apostle John is using that are drawn, interestingly enough, from the Old Testament scriptures. Now look, this is where I need to call a little bit of a time out and explain my general approach to the book of Revelation, and indeed the approach that most Reformed theologians have taken at this time. You know, for a lot of the people uh, who study the Bible and study Revelation in particular, they believe that what they're reading are events that belong exclusively to an unknown future that's coming for the people of God. That is, when you read the book of Revelation, it's like you're reading a newspaper from the future of events that have yet to happen. I actually don't think that's the best way of reading these passages. On the other hand, you have another group of Bible scholars who believe that what's described in the book of Revelation are events that belong exclusively in our past. In other words, they only had an application to these people who lived in the first decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. For these folks, Revelation is just a figurative description of first century events as they happened to the early church. And actually, I resonate with that view a good bit more than I do with the first, but even that one I would take a couple of issues with. Because I just want to suggest to you this morning that the best way to read Revelation is to see it as a pattern of experiences that would be happening to God's people throughout their sojourn on earth. In other words, yes, these images and visions that John is having, they did actually happen to the people within a couple of decades from the time of John's writing. Yes, they did. But they're referring to events that would be repeated over and over again for, well, for at least 2,000 years, I guess, since Jesus, since they were written, God's people began to read them. So therefore, when you hear about the dragon pursuing and seeking to destroy the people of God, we're not reading something that we're waiting to happen. Rather, we're looking at imagery that was meant for not only for its original audience, but also for us. I mean, the dragon was John's way of dramatizing the suffering that these people were going through in a way that they can understand. But with every passing epoch of church history, this powerful and highly symbolic imagery is repeated 
people to help people understand what it means until such a time as Jesus returns in bodily form and triumphantly. Let me put it this way. The dragon and the two beasts are still on the move. Look around you. I mean, how much is there even today to be discouraged by? Uh, into the world around us, it seems like is addicted to bad news. Uh, our nation is as divided as it's ever been. And, and even personally, like, is your family what you thought and hoped that it would be at this time? Has that job you've been working out panned out the way in which you thought it would? And did, did, you think, <laughs> did you think at this point of your life you'd kind of be over some of the stuff that you struggled with when you were younger? Look, and so we get this instruction then from the book of Revelation about how a Christian should respond in the face of just this incessant fear of defeat and really the fear of forces that terrorize us. And we get it in chapter 14, verse 3. Look at it. And they were singing a new song before the throne. Look, this is as clear as we can put it. When discouragement mounts up, Christians, they sing. That's what we do. Christians became those who knew how to sing their way through and out of the difficulties that came down to them. It's a marker of who we are. Think about how powerful this is. Because whenever God's people look at the powers of evil descending on them all around us, and oftentimes we sort of reason this way. We're like, well, if I could just get my candidate into the White House, or if I could just finally talk my spouse into leaving me, or if I could just get my kid to get his act together, it's not how Christians respond. When discouragement comes in on every side, God directs his people to sing. Now look, if that sounds curious to you, then that's okay. And if a little weird, but it may help us understand if we look at, secondly, the content of our singing. The context is one of discouragement, but what actually is the text of this song? And can that help us understand? Well, let's look at it. Because in order to understand exactly the song that these people are singing about the Lamb, we've got to do a little bit of work. Uh, And it has to do with dealing with this big number that you have there in the passage, that this group of people that are singing are 144,000 people. Well, who in the world is that? And of course, Bible students have puzzled over this for years, but I actually would submit to you that it's not that difficult when you begin to study how it was that a Jewish mind dealt with numbers. In other words, numbers were more than just sort of counting markers in a Hebrew sort of psyche. They were significant. They meant things. For example, the number three, we know is a number of completion or wholeness in the Bible. Four is the number of the earth. The Bible oftentimes will talk about the four corners of the earth. The the four winds of the earth will come out in the later book of Revelation. Seven is a whole number in the Jewish mind. Uh, This number of perfection and and, and completion. Ten also is a number of completeness as well. Twelve is the number of what we might call totality or or the whole number that there should be in the number twelve. So look, what happens is, is when you go back to places like Revelation chapter seven, verses one through four, John hears an angel tell him about all of those people who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And he says that their number totaled 144,000, which has thrown off a lot of people for quite some time. But then he turns, it says in verse 4, to see uh, these people. And there it says there, a great multitude that no one can number. Well, which is it? Is it 144,000 or is it a number that no one can number? 
And the answer is, is that John is symbolically depicting all of the Christians from all of the ages of every generation of the church by taking 12 times 12, symbolic probably of the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, and then multiplying it times 1,000, which heightens the idea. 1,000 is 10 times uh, 3 times. In other words, what he's saying is, is the 144,000 are all believing people. That if you trust in Christ this morning, it's you. Does that bring you into the passage? And so then we get this picture of the heavenly Jesus. And back in Revelation 5, we actually get even more pictures of this heavenly throne room that's sort of in the background of Revelation 14. And there's a lot of commotion going on when John gets there, so much so that it makes him cry. And suddenly, someone from the throne room approaches him and directs him to, to look at a lion says this in Revelation 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. You see the point. John needs to dry his tears because there's a lion. That's the reason why you can do this. He's coming as a symbol of strength and of power. But then there is this dramatic twist because John hears that he's supposed to look at the lion. But when he turns to look at the lion, he actually sees a lamb. And it has its throat cut, like it, had just been come, like it had just come from the Temple Mount at that very moment. In other words, he sounds like a lion, but he looks like a lamb. And so you get this running theme throughout the book of Revelation that Jesus is the one who is coming to conquer the forces that the dragon and the two beasts are inflicting on God's people all the time. But what's interesting and what Revelation focuses on is the way in which he is going to come and do so, which is by being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is different. How you ask? We'll dive into it. Well, here's the point. The lion is kind of what you would expect, isn't it? You know, all the talk of defeating enemies, it makes you think of a lion, someone who's fierce and has strength and maybe is aggressive in some respect. But the fact that instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb, means that there's a, there's, a, there's a juxtaposition that's being suggested there. You know, something is not quite what it seems. And so what the Bible ends up teaching is, is we know what he's referring to because the way the lamb is going to defeat the dragon is actually by absorbing the, e- the evil, that, uh, the, all the evil that the dragon can throw at him. That's the trick. In other words, what you get through the Gospels is Jesus, as it were, not combating evil through direct opposition. Instead, what he's doing is he's tempting evil. Bring it on. Come here. So that therefore, he can absorb the weight of the blow and neutralize its power to destroy. In other words, it's a passive obedience that the Lamb does. He he receives the weight of evil. But it's an active defeat of sin, (laughs) just like a lion. You see the imagery? So back in the 1960s and 70s, kids, there was a man named Muhammad Ali. Ali was a very colorful, uh, if not controversial, character in the boxing world uh, and one of its greatest champions, regardless of whether you liked him or not. One of his most famous fights was with an up-and-coming guy named George Foreman, the guy who made your grill that sits in uh, in your kitchen right now. I'm not kidding about that. That fight took place in what's now known as the Republic of Congo, but it was called in 1974, the Rumble in the Jungle. Huge fight that happened. And Foreman was known far and wide for being one of the most powerful punchers 
that the boxing world had ever produced, able to create this, I mean, crushing blows from this very powerful, thick, muscular frame. And typically, his fights just didn't last very long. People were crushed underneath his power. But Muhammad Ali had a plan. He would allow himself throughout the fight to kind of get boxed up into the ropes in a very defensive position with his arms up, kind of protecting his face and head. And every time Foreman would sort of land with these powerful punches, Ali would allow it to sort of push him back into the ropes. And the effect was that the ropes were absorbing the weight of the blows rather than Ali. (laughs) And after so many rounds of this, it found out that poor Foreman just ran out of gas from out punching. He just wasn't used to having to box that long because he'd already knocked the guy out by the third round. American novelist Norman Mailer described the advantage of what came to be known as Ali's rope-a-dope strategy is this way. He says, standing on one's feet, it's very painful to absorb a heavy body punch, even when it's blocked with your arms. The torso and the legs and the spine, they take the shock. But leaning on the ropes, however, Ali can pass it along. The rope will receive the strain. Of course, in the eighth round, Foreman was completely punched out, and Ali was able to sort of finish him with this five-punch combination. Turns out it was a left-hook-right combination. Yes, I've watched that many times. And the ref called the fight for Ali, game over. Now, why am I going into that, that amount of detail about that thing? The reason is because that is how the lamb defeats the dragon. Jesus did the same thing. He did not come in strength and in power. Rather, he humbled himself. And he tempted it all to come at it with everything that it had. And it did. Every lie, every injustice, every indignity, every sexual perversion that was had was thrown at Jesus in that fateful weekend. Satan had assaulted Jesus at that moment with everything that he had. But on the third day, Jesus rises again from the dead. And since his father had laid out this relationship with his people in the framework of a covenant, He allowed for a mediator, which means that he can be a go-between for his people. In other words, the dragon's ploy to crush the lamb was thwarted and ultimately brought to an end by swallowing and absorbing everything that evil had to offer. So look, go back to Revelation 14 for a second. You know, there are the the 144,000. They're there, they're gathered around the throne. Um, They're singing as they do. And what do they do? They got the name, the lamb's name written on the forehead, showing what? It's, it's showing that they belong to him. He owns them. And so they've come to fight the forces of evil along with him. But they don't have arrows. They don't have guns. They're not stockpiling ammunition or sort of setting the cannonades. No, the followers of the lamb aren't armed with any weapons of power that our world would fight with. What are they armed with? They're armed with their singing. That's what they're doing. They don't go into battle. They sing. And the funny thing is, is the song is not the battle. The song is what is done instead of the battle, which is really important. And so the question then was, then why don't they battle? And here's the answer. Because the lamb is already won. It's already been accomplished. It's already something that's been completed. And so Christians can sing through their conflict because in many ways the conflict has been neutered. It's, it's been robbed of its ability to have a, have a sting in it. Like there's no battle to be won because it's already been won. The only thing left for a Christian to do is to sing. And that's how it instructs us. And through that song, that's how they spread the gospel. And that's how they go and gossip it enough to where the world sort of is converted. 
Like the context of our song is the suffering, but the content of their singing is to sing a song about the lamb who's absorbed all the evil in the world into himself. Which brings you to the third point, and that is the capability of our singing. You realize now that our singing is now powerful. Um, but we, don't, we rarely look at this fact that the nature of the message that we bring as Christians to the world actually frames the manner of, of our propagation of that message. I mean, think about it. If we were coming to bring a message of self-discipline to the world, we'd probably come with fetters and chains for people. Uh, if we were coming to uh, uh, bring anarchy to the world, you know, we would come with guns and with bullets. But we're bringing good news. We're bringing the announcement of something that's already been done. And so therefore, what we have to give to the world is our singing. That's the message. And the crazy thing is, is there's nothing quite as transformational as this. If that sounds impotent to you, you missed it. And my good friend Ricky Jones uh, preached a sermon on this a number of years ago. He's a pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and first introduced me to this idea. And Ricky says that basically, if you really look at it, Christian's main contribution to the world has been the gift of singing. Because there's such a power in our songs. Because it started the world on the path to reconciliation and transformation. It's interesting, in the 4th century, the Orthodox Church at the Synod of Laodicea, if you must know, um, actually uh, banned congregational singing. I was able to dig up some of this online. It turns out that there was a quote from a historian who said, the standard practice in the Orthodox Church for the last 1,700 years at least then, is that of maintaining an ordained group of singers who sing the services. It is not the privilege of the congregation at large. In other words, only the professionals could do it. And then only in Latin, the common Christian was forbidden to do so. Well, you can imagine then (laughs) when a movement that would become known as the Protestant Reformation began in Europe, one of the first things that reformer Jan Hus did as one of the reformers was to compile a hymnal. (laughs) And of course, the Reformation took Europe by storm. Why? Because you cannot stop the power of God's people when they begin to sing. That's the message. Ricky goes on to talk about a couple other aspects of our singing. He says, singing also is invasive. It gets stuck in your head. Everybody has this experience, right? Ricky reminded me of a scene from um, uh, Inside Out, Pixar's movie Inside Out, about how the... uh, what do they call them? The, uh, the forgetters are always sending up to Riley's control room brain uh, that song about the dent gum jingle. Uh, yeah, the triple dent gum jingle. I'm afraid to say it for fear that that song gets stuck in my head. But have you ever had a song get stuck in your head? Well, then listen to Colossians 3.16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Ready for this? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, let the word of Christ get stuck in your head. That's the admonition there. Sing it to yourself. Sing it to each other. That's how you know it's gotten into you. Secondly, singing is, it can be very searching. Uh, there's a great spiritual barometer here because Revelation 14 is showing that the gospel is essentially a song. It's a song at its heart. And so for that reason, you can almost tell a lot about where you are spiritually by how you sing. I'm not talking about your voice quality. All those people who couldn't carry a tune in a bucket just got panicky this morning. That's not what this is about. The question is, you can say, maybe you know the words to the song. You may know the lyrics, but have you heard the music? Has it begun to sing in your heart? What a great way of asking a question about where we are with that. You know, my children were little, um, and they knew that there was something at the dinner table that they were excited to eat, like a fun food. 
They would actually start to eat and they would hum a little bit. And then maybe they would do a little bit of a dance, kind of a little bit of a happy dance, you know, because it's food time. Why? Because it just comes out of us. It's the way God gave us to express our joy. And part of the joy is in the expression. Singing also restores the soul. It enlivens us. Psalm 27, 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. How? I will sing and make melody to the Lord. In other words, the verse shows how it is that this guy's going to lift his head and work his way out of his depression by singing with God's people. You ever sung your way into a better frame of mind at church on Sunday mornings? You come in and you have no idea where you are, but somewhere around that the third stanza of the second song, you're kind of like, oh, that's why I'm here. Also, singing is infectious. You know, people want to join in when you sing. Um, I realize this is exactly what we were taught by the new holiday classic Elf, uh, that the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. Just want to check and see if you were out there. But here's what's funny. As silly as that sounds, there are fascinating studies that are done about how often spiritual revivals among certain communities follow musical revivals. When God's people begin to take their singing seriously, it's amazing how much it begins to bring life to the church. Why? Well, I think the reason is because singing ultimately is invincible. It's invincible. On Christmas Eve in 1870, during the Franco-Prussian War, the legend goes that while the fighting has, uh, has uh, gone on between French and German soldiers, on Christmas Eve night, there was a French soldier who stood up out of his foxhole, uh, exposing himself to enemy fire, and burst into song while he sang, O Holy Night. When he got to the last stanza, a German soldier from the other side stood up and started doing the exact same thing. Until by the middle of the night, both soldiers on each side had stood up to begin to simply sing. And there was a 24-hour ceasing of hostilities. Why? (laughs) Because that's what happens when people begin to sing. It accomplishes a mission. It's interesting, speaking of Jan Hus, the great reformer, when he was burned at the stake for the gospel, he died, everyone reported when they witnessed it, singing as the flames consumed him. Look, what's the point? The point is that there's something powerfully suggestive about the Bible's insistence that we sing. Because it's God's intention for us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And part of our enjoyment of Him is in the singing. That is the enjoyment. I realize, it it, it occurs to me that there's probably a tune in every single heart in this room this morning. For some of you, it may be a sad tune. It's all minor keys. Some of you, it may be a hard rock anthem with you at the helm of of an adventure that you're facing. Others of you may be singing sort of a calm lullaby, hoping that you can finally settle the anxious thoughts that you've got on the inside. But my point is you're singing some song right now. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at three songs that were sung by these people who first heard about Jesus' birth. And if there's anything that sums up what Christmas should be about for God's people, is that it should be the joy that first struck these people when they first heard about Jesus' advent. There's nothing to do. There was nothing to do except to burst into song. Ricky finished his sermon by telling a story about when he was going through a particularly difficult time in his ministry. And while he was reading through the scripture one afternoon and studying for something else, he said it was almost as if he could hear the voice, even though there was no voice, of God looking saying, Ricky, please, I've won the game. Just keep singing the fight song. I thought that's very, very well put. Because that's the essential nature of the gospel. The game's been won. 
but we keep singing the fight song. In the weeks to come, you will hopefully hear from us, if things tend to go well, um, our announcement about even a worship arts director that we've been doing a search for for the last six months with your own exaltation committee. And you're going to wonder to yourself, why are we doing that? You want to know why? Because it's essential to the accomplishment of our mission in this place that we learn to sing well. That we take it seriously what the people of God do as they come together to sing. Because God does things when his people get together and sing. So my question I would leave with you this morning is, is what would happen this year if we decided to weather Christmas by singing our way through it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us that grace to see that? Father, singing seems to be associated for us with a lot of self-consciousness. But man, when we get together and we get to sort of take a deep breath, and let it fly, something happens in us. And honestly, there's not a soul in this room who doesn't wish that that would happen this morning. So perhaps you give us that grace of being able to see the gospel, the fact that you have already accomplished everything that needs to be done, so that all that's left for us to do is not to take up arms, not to start another war, Father, to start singing. So Father, we begin our mission in just a few moments. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.